Every night before he goes to sleep, my three-year-old son, Canaan, will listen to a story played to him by what's called a Tony box, which is this audio player shaped like a cube. And, and Canaan can pick whatever story he wants to listen to uh, by placing these plastic toy-looking figures that are magnetized on top of the, of the Tony box, whether it's, it's Mickey or uh, a Minion or the, the Big Hungry Caterpillar or whatever it is. Uh, and because this, this Tony box audio player is designed for toddlers, all the controls on it are, are, are so that toddlers can understand. So you turn up and turn down the volume by pinching these little ears on the top of the Tony box. And you can skip tracks simply by tapping the side of the Tony box, which, which Kanan does very aggressively, whacking the, the Tony box. Uh, because Kanan listens to these stories every night, he knows exactly what stories and what songs he likes and exactly what songs and stories he doesn't like. I've seen him whack the Tony box like five and six times trying to get to the, to the track he wants. It's hilarious to watch and, and probably a really bad omen for our future considering how opinionated this little guy is. You and I do the same thing, don't we, on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. We curate our, our playlist. We tell Alexa, Alexa, next song, please. Uh, we skip by what we don't want to hear. I think a lot of people do that with their Bible. They curate what they like from the Bible, certain stories about God or, you know, ethical teaching that makes them feel good. But when it comes to the hard realities of the Bible, things like our human depravity, things about the reality of God's judgment that we deserve, whack! We just want to skip it, right? Don't want to listen to that. Not positive enough, not, not self-affirming enough. Too, too Debbie Downer, Alexa, next topic, please. Maybe some of us want to do that this morning, right? With this passage in Romans 3, which is honestly one of the most brutal, brutally honest descriptions of the human race in all the Bible. And friends, I, I do get it. I do get it. Coming to yet another text about human sin and divine judgment kind of feels like we're stuck in the movie Groundhog Day in the book of Romans, doesn't it? No matter what we do, we're reliving the same sermon over and over again. I think this is the fifth sermon in Romans on these hard topics. And, and because Romans is so dense and so thick, our, our pace really can't be too fast. And that just means that we're, well, we're left in the weeds of sin and judgment for a few Sundays. I don't say that at all to apologize, but just to let you know, I do get it. Believe me, I, I don't get kicks and giggles by preaching about God's judgment five Sundays in a row, right? Uh, they're hard sermons to listen to. They're sometimes hard to preach. But you know why it's important that we not speed through the hard to hear stuff? We kind of whack the Tony of the Bible to get to the softer topics, not merely because the things we've been looking at in Romans are, are real and they're inescapable realities, that's very true, but there's another reason that corresponds to Paul's purpose for Romans. Understanding the realities of sin and judgment should serve to magnify how just breathtakingly beautiful God's grace in the gospel really is. Beloved, my prayer is that each time we come to these type of verses, and by the time we get to verse 21 and following here in a couple of weeks, and we read these words, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ, our hearts will just instinctively leap, yes, in praise and thanks, that our mouths would just hang agape and stun gratitude at what our God has done in his mercy to rescue wretched sinners who deserve his judgment. 
like us. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 3. Romans 3, it's on page 940 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, the reason it feels like we're in the sermon version of Groundhog Day is because from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is meticulously developing the same basic argument. And the case that he is setting forward is essentially why the gospel, the message of God's salvation, is so vitally necessary. Why all must obey it by faith through, or yeah, obey it, by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the discussion he began back in Romans 1, 16 to 17. And what is that reason? Paul says, because all people have failed to glorify God and thus deserve his just condemnation for their sin. This applies to pagan Gentiles, which he addresses in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and self-righteous Jews, which he addresses in chapter 2 and now on into chapter 3. Paul's basically saying, hey guys, the playing field is level. Everyone is in the same boat. We all are by nature rebels and idolaters and no built-in spiritual advantage we think we have can shield us from what we rightly deserve, which is God's just settled response to our rebellion, what Paul calls God's wrath on the last day. And on that day, when God judges, he will judge fairly and righteously. That's why we so desperately need Jesus and the gospel. That's why we need a new heart, as we looked at last week. That's why we need a new life remade by the Spirit of God. That's kind of where we left off in chapter 2 with, with Paul's argument that ethnic and religious Jewishness and all the things that come with it don't amount to a kind of a spiritual rabbit's foot that will magically exempt anyone from receiving what they deserve, especially the Jews, along with the rest of the world. Well, Paul wraps up his argument in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul wraps up his argument both to the Jews and to everyone. He kind of seals the deal. Let's read it together. Verses 1 to 20 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That is, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the main idea of Romans 3, 1 to 20, that I hope will be the main idea of the sermon today is this. No argument, no argument will allow you to wiggle free from God's righteous judgment. The seriousness of your sin prevents any legitimate self-defense. No argument, no human argument that you come up with in your mind will allow you to wiggle free from God's fair and righteous judgment on that last day. The seriousness of your sin prevents any legitimate self-defense. Two points this morning, just kind of outlining those two big chunks of text that we just read. First of all, in verses 1 to 8, verses 1 to 8, the failure of human arguments. The failure of human arguments. Number two, verses 9 to 20, the pervasiveness of human sin. The failure of human arguments, the pervasiveness of human sin. May God do His work in and among us this morning. Let's look at those first eight verses, the failure of human arguments. Perhaps when we read these verses, you thought to yourself, what in the world is Paul saying here? Like, I am not tracking at all. Well, I I think the the key to understanding verses 1 to 8 is to realize that Paul is continuing his conversation with George the Jew, okay? That's what I've called Paul's imaginary Jewish conversation partner that he brought along uh, in Romans starting in chapter 2. Paul kind of writes in this debate style as a way to, to head off objections that the Jews would make to the gospel and their need for Christ. Upon first reading, though, the the passage feels strange. It's full of all this kind of twisting logic that's hard to grasp. But what's actually happening is Paul is, is listing one by one and then knocking down one by one these arguments that the Jews might make in their kind of last gasp effort to evade God's judgment and their need for rescue spiritually. And friends, as much as it's been fun, I think, to call Paul's conversation partner George the Jew, although Jerry Wiseman assures me not many Jews are named George. Um, as much as it's been fun to call him that, these arguments were not imaginary. These were not hypothetical. The book of Acts shows us that in Paul's missionary journeys, what would he do? He would start off in each city by doing what? Preaching in the synagogues to Jewish unbelievers. No doubt the arguments that he's listing from George the Jew were real arguments that the Jews were making to him as he preached Christ. Here's the first objection that George the Jew would have made to Paul's teaching. Something like this. Oh, you're saying that God's covenant with us means nothing, right? Your teaching, Paul, undermines God's covenant. Paul summarizes that objection in the form of a question in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what, what is the value of circumcision? Now, given all that he's talked about so far, that no one has this innate moral advantage on Judgment Day, what would you expect Paul's answer to be? None. No, 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 George the Jew, you don't have an advantage, but that's not what he says, is it? Paul responds in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The fact that being an ethnic Jew has no value in protecting them from God's judgment doesn't mean that being a Jew is valueless. It has much value in every way, Paul writes. And Paul actually lays out a much longer list of of advantages and value at the beginning of Romans 9, if you want to look at that passage on your own time. 
But for now, he wants them to see that the most obvious advantage of being a Jew is is that God had entrusted them with the oracles of God. Now, I'm not sure why some English translations uh, translate that word oracles. Uh, What comes to my mind when I read that is something like mysterious and weird, like the oracle of Delphi in Greek mythology, right? But Paul isn't envisioning something that only Indiana Jones can find in the Temple of Doom, okay? That word oracle simply means words. There is real value in being a Jew because God has entrusted the nation of Israel with his very words recorded in the Old Testament. What an amazing privilege. The Jews had a responsibility given to no other people because they have the words of God. They were the custodians of God's revelation in the Old Testament scripture. They had what Paul called in chapter two, the very embodiment of of knowledge and truth, the revelation of God in written form, God's very words. And that privilege heightened their responsibility to understand God's saving plan. That's the value that Paul is talking about. It's a value of responsibility, not of eternal security. One thing my family enjoys doing from time to time is is going to main event and playing the the arcades. Uh, And of course, I and the kids usually spend time at the racing game, you know, with with the actual pedals and the steering wheel and all. And uh, before you play that racing game, you usually get to select an upgrade whether it's the car's look, you know, the detail or, or the, the handling or the engine, or you get a nitro booster, right? And uh, the nitro package, which is like a rocket booster that you can push during the game. And friends, I have to be honest, I don't remember a time that I've played that game when I didn't pick the nitro package, okay? That's just what I do. I want the rocket boost. I want the acceleration, okay? But what would happen, what would happen if I got into the race itself, I'm racing Cooper or Hadley or whatever, and even though my car was equipped with the nitro, I chose not to use it to win the race. Who should I blame? The nitro? The game's programmer? No, I should only blame myself because although I had the advantage to win the race that I could have used, I completely ignored it. Friends, I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says that the Jews had a real advantage and value in being a Jew. They had a head start in their relationship with God. They should have recognized the Messiah when he came, but they didn't. Friends, I know there are some sitting here this morning. You've grown up in a Christian home. You've sat week by week with your family under the sound of the preaching of the gospel, Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday, you've been taught the scriptures by parents who love God and love you and want you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have all the advantages that you need to come to saving faith in Jesus, but you've not yet let them impact your life like that. Friends, the advantages that you have give you a heightened responsibility to respond in faith and repentance to Jesus You respond to it with a a full heart of trust in God through Christ. And I pray that you'll do that even this morning. Specifically, I think Paul has in mind when he's talking about the oracles of God in verse 1, I think he has in mind specifically God's promises in the Old Testament. Because look at the second objection here that he answers starting in verse 3. The Jews objected that Paul's teaching contradicted or nullified God's faithfulness. 
How can God be faithful to his covenant promises and yet still pour out his wrath on his covenant people at the same time? That's what Paul is summarizing starting in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul responds to that objection, no, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, friends, Paul is going to address this very objection in full when we get to Romans 9 through 11. But for now, he wants them to understand that just because the majority of the Jews were faithless and deserving of God's judgment, it doesn't mean that God isn't faithful to keep his promises of salvation, to keep his word. The Jews' failure to keep God's law and then to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, it doesn't impugn the righteous or faithful character of God or his promise. God has and will keep his promises and all the true people of God will be saved. Paul is forceful about this, isn't he? He asks the question and then he answers it in verse four, by no means. That's like, not on your life. Not in a thousand years would the Jews' sin negate God's faithfulness. In fact, if every one of them were a liar, God would still be true and faithful to his promises because he remains true to himself. Even though we lie and break covenant with God, God cannot lie and he will not break covenant with us. To support his point in verse four, Paul quotes David in Psalm 51.4. You see that? That's where Paul says, at the, uh, at the end of verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That's from Psalm 51.4. What's the context? Well, remember in Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin after Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin of taking Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, for himself and then having Uriah killed. In Psalm 51.4, David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Friends, you see what Paul is doing here? He gives the example, not of some ordinary Jew who sinned and deserved God's judgment. He gives the example of the very king of the Jews, the king of God's people, and not just any ordinary king, the very one with whom God established his, his great covenant. You know it. God had promised David an eternal dynasty, an everlasting throne through his offspring. And yet, even though David was a recipient of God's saving promises, God was still entirely justified. He was right and just and good to mete out consequences for David's sin. My goodness, if God's faithfulness wasn't compromised by the unfaithfulness of King David himself and the consequences that God dealt out, Surely his faithfulness cannot be brought into question by the sin of any of us and the judgment that we deserve. Our God will keep all his promises, both to save those who come to him on his terms and to judge those who don't. His character is never threatened by ours. You know what? That's a sobering word. That's a sobering word regarding God's judgment. God is faithful even when we're not. It's a sobering word, but it's an exhilarating word regarding God's mercy in Christ. When we are unfaithful, when we fail to trust God, when we sin, 
He remains faithful. He doesn't treat our sins as, as they deserve because he has already judged them in Christ Jesus. So that when we confess our sin, John writes, when we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, if you're in Christ, don't measure God's posture toward you based on your character. Measure God's posture toward you based on his character. We change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. God can never change. He has never changed. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So Paul's just been taking down George the Jews' objections one by one by one. We've got the law. Yeah, but you don't obey it. Oh, we've got circumcision. Yeah, but it's your inner man, not your outer man that matters. Oh, then you must be saying there's no advantage to being a Jew. Nope, that's not what I'm saying at all. God entrusted you with his very words, and yet you still rejected Jesus. Oh, then you must be saying that God is unfaithful to, to his promises by judging the Jews. Wrong. God is true, though every man is a liar. See it? One by one by one. Paul's reducing the Jews' arguments to just smoldering rubble. Surely by now they'll relent, right? Uncle, mercy. I give in. No. Instead of relenting, it seems that some of them turn to the just the absurd. Here's the gist of their next objection. You're going to need to follow this because it's weird. Okay, if it's like you say, Paul, that our faithlessness and unrighteousness serves to highlight God's faithfulness and his righteousness, well, then that makes God unrighteous to judge us because he'd be judging the very ones who helped him display his righteous and good character. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Again, friends, Paul is, is asking this question in the voice of George the Jew. He's, he's voicing this patently absurd objection that the Jews lodged against his teaching. He repeats it again, essentially the same objection in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Again, the Jews' objection went something like this. If, if I'm unjust, if I'm false to the covenant, and, and God is just and he's true to the covenant when he punishes me, then you might say that my badness has brought God's goodness more clearly out into the open for all to see. My sin has helped God. And since the result was more glory to God, a.k.a. his righteous character being seen, well, then it just seems unfair to condemn me for that, right? It's like when the, you know, the basketball player clearly commits an egregious foul that everyone in the, the stadium and everyone watching at home can see as plain as day. And when the, when the referee whistles him for the foul, he reacts with this shocked incredulity, like, what, me? I didn't touch him, man. How could you call that on me, even though you're so clearly right? On its face, this argument is just silly and absurd. As is so often the case with people's objections to Jesus, frankly, even though they may seem intellectual, even though they may appear reasoned on the surface, when you drill down to it, you realize just how nonsensical and easily defeatable those objections are. I can't see God, therefore he must not be real. 
if God is all powerful, he should be able to create a rock so big that he can't lift it. Oh, aha, you got, you got God, finally. Honestly, part of the consequences of humanity's rejection of God is that our sin makes us stupid. It warps our thinking. People give their, their mental energies over wholeheartedly to arguments and worldviews and perspectives that make no sense logically or theologically. And yet in their arrogance, they think that somehow their superior intellect has finally backed God into a corner. They've finally pinned God down. And so often, friends, it just takes a little thought and a little biblical logic to dismantle an argument entirely. And that's what Paul does in verse 5. First of all, he feels so embarrassed about it, even asking this absurd question that he says, I, I speak in a human way. Like, sorry, guys, it's just a question that's come up, okay? But then he answers in verse 5, by no means, not on your life. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, friends, when the Jew argues that God should not be able to judge him, Paul responds, well, by that logic, God should not be able to judge anyone because all are sinners. And of course, the Jews wanted God to judge those nasty Gentiles, so that logic won't work for them, will it? Paul swats that one away like it's nothing. Well, apparently, the Jews that were making this absurd argument that their sin helped God so that so God would be unjust to punish them also falsely accused Paul of teaching that it's okay to live however you want. If human sin highlights God's righteousness and therefore God cannot justly judge that unrighteousness, well then you must be saying that sin isn't really all that bad. It's not sin. And in verse eight, you see that? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? At this point, I think Paul had finally had enough. Up to this point, he'd been kind of willing to interact with each argument. He'd shown the, the logical and theological fallacies of each of them. But some arguments are so silly that they don't even merit a response. Paul just says, if you think that God's righteous character somehow promotes your unrighteousness, if you think that his character gives you a hall pass to live however, however you want, your thinking is just so evidently warped. He just dismisses them out of hand and says their condemnation is just. People who say God is wrong to condemn them are precisely the people who deserve to be condemned. And some of you this morning need to realize how flimsy the arguments against God and against Christianity that you've been holding on to really are. You need to wake up and realize that just because an argument makes sense to you doesn't mean it's right. Just because you've never heard a sufficient answer to that one question you have doesn't mean there isn't an answer. Perhaps it's time to realize that you are a finite creature and you are an accountable to an infinitely wise creator who is also your judge. It's not God and Christianity that hangs in the balance, but you. It's your life that will be scrutinized on the day of judgment, not God's. If you have good faith questions, ask them all day long. Get good, solid answers from Christians in your life, from the elders here. But if they're bad faith questions like the hecklers that Paul mentions here, then friends, it's time to lay your weapons down before it's too late. 
Don't hedge your bets against your creator and just kind of try to skate by the judgment day and think it's going to be okay. Why don't even today you yield your life to the Christ as the one who died for you and who rose again and say to the world, listen, I am tired of the charade. I am tired of the theatrics. I am tired of the rebellion. I'm with him. I'm with King Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You simply turn from your sin and you follow Jesus by faith. Brothers and sisters, I think Paul sets a wonderful example for us in our evangelism, doesn't he? He doesn't doesn't plug his ears to objections and questions. He listens to them patiently, carefully. He deals with them accordingly. If we're going to evangelize effectively in a day and age so hostile to the gospel, we need to respond to people's objections with seriousness and honesty. If you're in a gospel conversation with someone and you just don't know how to respond to the argument they're making, don't freak out, right? Don't make something up. Just say, you know what? I'm not sure about that right now, but I'll think about it. I'll get some help with it. I'll get back to you. My guess is even Paul had to do that from time to time. Don't be threatened by the objections people hurl against the gospel. Remember, friends, that God has rendered the wisdom of the world to be utter folly in his sight. The day is coming when the truth will be fully vindicated and proven true. Even the mouths of the scoffers will be silenced. So don't fret. Don't get tied up in knots. Don't let fear keep your mouth shut. Remember, the power is not in your ability to answer questions. The power is in what? It's in the gospel itself. It's the gospel that contains God's power to save, not your capabilities. So take heart and be bold. Number one, the failure of human arguments. Number two, the pervasiveness of human sin. The pervasiveness of human sin. Paul continues in verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Uh, Okay, wait a second. Wait a second. Paul basically asked the same question as he did in verse one, but he gives the, an opposite answer, right? In verse one, he asks, what advantage or value is there to being a Jew? And he answers, well, much in every way. Now he asks, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he answers, nope, not at all. Well, that's kind of weird. It really is pretty easy to see the difference though, right? In verse nine, Paul's no longer talking about the value of the Jews' responsibility. He's back to talking about whether the Jews have this built-in moral advantage you know, for God to play favorites with them on Judgment Day. And of course, he's shown repeatedly how ridiculous that is. And that's what he explains at the end of verse nine. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, Paul is kind of ratcheting up the intensity by picturing all humanity as under the crushing burden of sin. Paul wants us to see how massive this problem really is. It's not just that sin makes us do bad things. No, Paul pictures sin as a cruel tyrant, as a a taskmaster who has all under him, imprisoned in guilt and judgment. He's our slave master. He's on top of us, crushing us beneath his weight. As we go throughout Romans, we're gonna see Paul picture sin exactly like this, as a dominant power. He describes sin as reigning, chapter five, verse 21, and chapter six, verse 12, as enslaving, chapter six, verse six, as exercising dominion, chapter six, verse 14. 
Friends, just think about all that we've learned so far about the human condition in chapters 1 and 2. Paul's statement right here in verse 9 explains everything. Why do people bury the truth about God so that it makes no difference in their lives? Because they are under sin. Why do people not only give themselves fully to evil, but approve of those who do in their idolatry? Because they are under sin. Why do religious people hypocritically think that their morality excuses them from God's judgment? Because they are under sin. We have a problem that we cannot remedy on our own. We need someone to free us from the chains of our taskmaster. Paul is now just tying a bow on this entire argument from chapter 118 on. He's drawing the net wide to show just how pervasive and universal and horrific our sin really is. What he does in verses 10 and following is to drive this point home, to drive this point home as he quotes like seven or eight passages from the Old Testament, one from Ecclesiastes, five from Psalms, one from Isaiah. That's seven, okay. It's like a theological shock and awe campaign. Remember when President Bush used this term about one of our military invasions? He just wanted to overwhelm and intimidate the enemy by a display of military force. That's what Paul is doing here. It's shock and awe about our sin. He wants us to react with this guttural, visceral horror at how ugly and universal our problem really is. It's not really hard to see how Paul structures this list of these Old Testament quotations. In verses 10 to 12, he highlights the fact that sin isn't merely seen in our actions, but it really starts in how corrupt our thoughts and our desires and our hearts are. No one has a nature, no one has a spiritual DNA free of the debilitating effects of sin. And then in verse 13 and 14, he moves on from our sin nature to our sinful speech. And then in verses 15 to 17, he moves on to our sinful conduct or behavior, what we do with our feet, so to speak. And then in verse 18, he gives the ground reason for it all at the ground floor. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why we're like the way we are. In verses 10 to 12, Paul utilizes Ecclesiastes 7.20, Psalm 14.1-3, and Psalm 53.1-3 to make his point. And what sticks out like a sore thumb in these verses is just how universal sin is. Every descendant of Adam, everyone, every human being without exception is by nature under sin. Paul double clicks on this idea time and time again. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Let's just notice how dramatically different this picture is than the one our culture paints. The world will tell you that we humans are basically good but flawed people, right? And the key to becoming a better person is is to access the good deep within you. Harness the light within. Discover the true you. Express that light. But the consistent message of God's word presents a different diagnosis altogether. Because of Adam's rebellion against God, every human is infected by sin. Therefore, we act in accordance with our nature, And our nature is thoroughly unrighteous. We are sinners against God at our core. Paul says without divine grace, without grace, 
None of us understands or seeks God in a way that would lead to salvation. Not one. Sin has corrupted us even at the level of our will and our wants. There's no room for God in our thoughts because we're so preoccupied with ourselves. When Paul says no one does good, not even one, he's not denying, Paul's not denying that human beings can do good and helpful things. That's not what he's saying. But again, he's saying that this good cannot merit salvation because of how stained by evil our hearts really are. It's like, it's like trying to hold up our good deeds as a trophy before God, but it's cracked and it's covered by filth. It just amounts to nothing in the scales of eternity. In verses 13 and 14, Paul shows that out of our rotten hearts comes rotten speech. He quotes Psalm 5.9, Psalm 143, and Psalm 10.7. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Do you have the mental picture? Paul's reference to the grave highlights just how rotten and deadly sin is. Instead of using our mouths to glorify God and build up others, human speech reflects our sinful hearts. Our vulgarity, our profanity, our unkindness, our arrogance, our sensuality, our bitterness, all comes out in the way we talk. Paul says when we open our mouths, we are exposing the rotting, stinking death inside of us. And then he moves on to deceit and lies. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Out of our mouths drip deadly poison. We use our tongues, friends, to protect ourselves and destroy others. To hide the truth while exposing lies. You can't help but see just the satanic imagery here, can you? Our speech is so often modeled after the poison of the evil one. The way we talk is cruel and demonic. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take just sinful actions to rip a relationship apart, does it? Just words. It doesn't take some huge outward sin to disintegrate a family or ruin a relationship. Words is all it takes. We know the reality of what Paul is saying, don't we? And then finally, in verses 15 to 17, he does move to our actions. Paul utilizes Isaiah 50, 59, 7, Proverbs 1, 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Friends, just turn on the nightly news, and you'll know the truth of this verse. Violence and war mark the human experience. You know, we boast here in the U.S. about valuing peace and justice and the lack of violence. Yet we'll battle tooth and nail for the right to destroy innocent life in the name of reproductive health and bodily autonomy. We sacrifice our children on the altar of our desire for sexual freedom. Friends, the progression of sin from our hearts to our mouths to our actions, this is what the biblical doctrine of total depravity is all 
about. That's what it is. It doesn't mean, it does not mean that every human being is as depraved as he or she could possibly be. Thank God that he restrains sin through his common grace. No, when we talk about total depravity, we're talking about sin's extent, not sin's degree. What we mean is that the, the, the totality of our corruption, it just extends to every part of us. It is pervasive. It wraps its tentacles around every facet of our lives. No part of us is untouched by sin. So then we are neither able nor willing to seek and honor God with our lives left to ourselves. Our only hope is God's grace in Christ. Without it, we are lost. Paul sums it up and gives the reason for this. He kind of grounds it all in verse 18. He quotes Psalm 36.1. We read it earlier in the service. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, in all this talk about sin, Paul's not talking about sin kind of being just like minor peccadillos, trivial but overcomable flaws. No, he's talking about nothing less than our revolt against God's rule. Sin at its very heart de-centers God. It de-gods God. Sin is the dethronement of God so that we might rule in his place. Instead of seeking the glory of God, I seek my own glory. Instead of loving him above all, well, man, I love me some me. Friends, what, what Paul has done in these verses, it should be devastating to human pride and presumption. Think of the flow of the passage, right? Think of the flow. He's arguing that both Jew and Gentiles are guilty before God. And then just to make sure, just to make sure the Jews get the point, he carpet bombs them with verses from their own scriptures. There is no wiggle room. All are under sin. He wraps it up in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We're going to look at verse 20 more carefully in a couple weeks. But needless to say here, the image is a defendant in court, right? Who, when given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, well, he's rendered speechless because of the weight of evidence brought before him. His mouth is stopped shut when he stands before the judge. He's guilty as charged. He can say nothing. Friends, this news is grim. It's dark. Left to ourselves, the situation is hopeless. But thanks be to God, he did not leave us to ourselves. He could have. If God had left humanity lost in sin and captive to his judgment, the entire universe would have risen and given him a standing ovation on the last day. You are just and you are right to condemn those humans, all of them. And yet, in staggering kindness, despite our treachery against his rule, despite the fact that we rejected his love, yet he loved us still when we were helpless to move toward him, he moved toward us in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We couldn't possibly live a life glorifying to God to merit his righteousness 
And so Jesus did that for us. It's through faith in him that he credits us with what he's earned. We couldn't possibly atone for such heinous, grotesque sin. And so Jesus did that by dying on the cross and taking in himself the penalty for our sin. So that through faith, our sin is credited to Jesus on the cross. And there he satisfied God's justice to atone for it. We couldn't possibly achieve eternal life on our own. So Jesus did that when he rose on the third day. So that God's verdict over his life becomes God's verdict over all those who turn from their sins to Christ Jesus and are united to him by faith. Oh, friends, thanks be to God. The bad news only makes the good news shine brighter. And if you're not a Christian, you know what the first step in being reconciled to God is and having a relationship with him? It's humility. It's humility. You stare your sin in the face. and You see it laid out. You see it laid out just like Paul did against your creator. And you say, I'm undone. Like, who am I? I have nothing to offer God. I, I need a rescuer. I need a savior. I cannot possibly save myself. I need Christ. If anyone's going to take me to God, it's going to be you, Jesus. I trust in you. Friends, just as much as your arguments don't intimidate our God, neither does your sin. Christ Jesus bore the ferocity of God's wrath against sin so that we might know the ferocity of his love. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There is mercy with the Lord and he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Brothers and sisters, if you're this morning, you're bored with Christianity, your heart has grown cold toward Jesus. Could it be that you've forgotten what we've talked about this morning? Could it be that you've forgotten the depths of your sin and the enormity of what God in his great kindness and love has rescued us from? I think that's very possible. I'm sorry for my emotions. I, I usually cry when I don't get much sleep the night before and I surely didn't last night. The way to warm your heart toward the things of God is not to whack the Tony to an easier topic. It's to remember all that Christ Jesus has rescued you from. It's to let the bad news trampoline your heart to the skies in rejoicing in the good news. Think of all we've talked about this morning. Think of all the grotesque, heinous nature of sin, and yet for those united to Jesus by faith, there is no condemnation for us. Such mercy, it beckons the response of our worship. It demands our all. It compels us to fight sin with all we've got. We love him because he first loved us. Friends, we're never gonna shy away from talking about the bad news here at RGC. You know, but it's not so that we can just kind of pat ourselves on the back, right? Thank you, Lord, for our faithfulness. No, it's so that the realities of sin and judgment might drive us back to the cross. 
so that it might launch us toward the mercy of God, which is our only hope. And as Christ's gospel becomes more dear to us and more rich to us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be more eager, more compelled, more driven to be a gospel people. Our witness and our evangelism will correspond to how deep the realities of the gospel have sunk into our lives and into our church. After all, that's Paul's purpose for Romans. Remember? He wants to unify a gospel people together for gospel mission. May God continue to do this good work among us. Let's pray. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote His sacred head for such a worm as I? Lord Jesus, we praise You for Your love and for Your mercy toward sinners like us. We have nothing to offer You, but everything to gain from You. And so this morning we come to You and we sing, we praise You how deep the Father's love for us. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot have an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.